Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Eamon Keane on the topic Forgiveness and Reconciliation. This February 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Eamon Keane is the Head of Social Science at Redfield College. sacrament of penance. And the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of reconciliation, the sacrament of confession, and, and it comes under some other names in the catechism as well, the sacrament of forgiveness. All these are referred to the one reality, confession. The great sacrament that Jesus instituted. And it's given to us as a gift, given to the church as a gift. It is another um, manifestation of the outpouring of God's love, his generosity. And I suppose last night when I prepared the talk and I done these lovely slides, the first slide I put up was the slide of the Holy Trinity. And the little line in it, the scriptural reference was God is love. And everything we believe as Catholics can be traced back to the revelation to our belief in the Holy Trinity, that God is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And every doctrine we say that the revelation of the Holy Trinity is at the, the peak, if you like, at the summit of our whole structure of belief and doctrine. Everything derives its meaning from that. And, of course, when St. John says God is love, he's referring to the Holy Trinity. And we know that God created time. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? God created time. Because in God himself there is no time. God is eternity. But God created time, and he created time in order to create us. And just by I'm talking about that, Pope John Paul II has a beautiful statement, a beautiful way he describes God becoming man in Jesus in the Incarnation, he says, God entered time, talking in Jesus, so that man could enter eternity into God's life. Anyhow, in time, as we know, God created the universe, and he created that, and the high point of his creation of the physical universe was the creation of man as male and female. And he created them in his own image and likeness. So that like him, they had intellect, they had free will, and in the, with the combination of both intellect and free will, they were capable of acting like God. And what was it to act like God? To love. They were capable of, first of all, saying yes to God. Because, you know, the first commandment, you must love God first. And through their love for God, they would be capable of loving each other. But there was one requirement. To love God and to truly love themselves, they had to accept themselves as they actually were. They were creatures. They weren't God. They were called to that intimate, eternal communion of life with God, but they weren't God. So they had to accept their limitations, that they were created beings, that they were creatures. And God being God, God being the Creator, 
God being the one in which goodness and love and intelligence and power, etc., um, exists to an infinite degree, they had to accept that God was the one who distinguished good from evil. God was the one who brought into existence his creation. And he was the one who determined the way in which that creation should move in order to express the goodness he had ascribed in it. And of course, for any part of that creation to move contrary to God's plan for it, especially intelligent human beings, like human beings who are capable of discerning God's will, they had to accept the distinction he drew between good and evil. They had to be obedient. They had to be obedient to the law of God, which was simultaneously the law of their own nature. That's the natural law means the law of God is written into our being. And that law of our nature is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And of course, the first commandment you have is you shall, um, I am the Lord your God. You shall not have no strange God before me. And I suppose the first strange God that we must not have is ourselves. We must not elevate ourselves to the level of God as the ones capable of finally deciding, ultimately deciding, where the distinction between good and evil lies. And of course, that was the very first temptation that the devil planted in front of them. You will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And they fell to that subtle temptation of the devil, and they disobeyed God. And when they disobeyed God, they contradicted the truth about themselves and about their own nature. And they turned away from God. When they would not accept God as God offered himself to them and revealed himself to them, they turned away from God. And in turning away from, self, from God, they also turned away from each other. And we see our first parents, how they started accusing each other of the wrong that was done, and so on. And eventually their alienation from God, the, the, the wounds that they inflicted upon their own nature, affected their children as well. And we see Cain killed Abel, and so on. You get the building of the Tower of Babel, and you get this murder on the earth. You get the flood because human society and individual degenerated into all kinds of barbarism and, you know, whatever it was. And God, you know, using human language, it says kind of, you know, God regretted having created man, right? So he decided uh, to send them a warning for the flood. But he did not destroy them in the flood. Some survived. And you'll find the theme continuing throughout the, the Old Testament. God continuously calls the people he's created. The people he has chosen as his own. He offers himself, himself to them in a covenant. And he will be the Lord he will be their God and they will be his people and he will protect them and he will look after them. And that's what basically God did at creation in the first covenant. All will go well. If you accept me for who I am, I am God, your creator. If you accept me and trust in me and let me show you the way to your ultimate destiny, you will get there and you will be happy and you will live in my presence forever. However, the ongoing theme, the ongoing saga of sin, 
They're rebellion against God and His revelation. They're rebellion against His commandments. They're rejection of His covenant. And God many, many times threatens to wipe them off the face of the earth. But He, he doesn't. He calls them back to Himself. Mind you, in the process, there's great suffering. And they have, they have great defeats and great losses and so on. And you'll even find eventually, you know, when they're, they're, they're in Egypt there and they're enslaved in Egypt, the chosen people. And through Moses, God calls them into liberation. But what was that liberation he called them to? What was the high point of the liberation and the exodus? It was the revelation again, the renewal of the covenant on Sinai. When God called his people again to be his people. To recognize him as their one and only God. And to conform their lives to his revelation about the truth of their own being. And the high point of the, um, of the, of the journey in the Exodus is the giving of the Ten Commandments on Sinai. And then the sealing of the covenant in the blood of the sacrificial lamb. But even then, we know that many of them died in the desert. Because they didn't want to continue along that journey. The journey into freedom, which can also be taken as a journey out of sin, into the liberty and the freedom of the children of God. And of course, you could look at all of that as a prefigurement. That crossing where God separates the sea and the saved in the sea, while the Egyptians are drowned and so on, we can look at it as a prefigurement of baptism. And just as Moses receives the Ten Commandments on, uh, on Mount Sinai. We see Jesus, the ultimate liberator, the ultimate saviour, the definitive covenant, the redeemer of man, not just of the chosen people, of everybody. He proclaims the law of the new covenant in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. But in proclaiming the Beatitudes as the law of the new covenant, he does not destroy or abolish the Ten Commandments. He lifts them up and gives them a much greater and much holier and much more profound and much more humane interpretation. And we talk about that later. But the whole point about all that, when we look at our own lives, it's just the fall. All you've got to do is look around the world. All the brokenness. All the exploitation. All the hurt. All the pain. Just turn on the news tonight. All the murder, all the corruption, all the marriages that break down and all the pain that's involved in that. You look into each of our own hearts, you see there, no matter how much we struggle to lead a good life, it's still full of a lot of things that we don't like, we're not proud of. Look at all the past hurts we're, we're holding on to. Look at all the pent anger we may have against some family members or some colleague at work or somebody who hurt us in the, in the past. Look at all the offences that may have been committed against us in the past that we haven't really forgiven. One of the greatest needs in the world today is the need for forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. We all know that we, at times, do wrong. We sin. And we carry that sin around, uh, along with us unless 
we experience forgiveness from. But to be forgiven, we have to open ourselves to forgiveness. And of course, in coming to save us, Jesus had to save us from the consequences of our sin. So, at the center of Jesus' whole life was that he came to call sinners. To call them to what? To call them to repent. The first words of the Gospel of St. Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And we find in the other in the Gospels, the first public, um, in some of the Gospels, Jesus, um, he, he inaugurates his public mystery through his baptism in the Jordan. And Pope Benedict XVI has a profound reflection on Jesus' baptism in the Jordan in his book, Jesus of Nazareth. But, but if I remember, my memory serves me right, in it he identifies it as a gesture by Jesus. He's immersion into the water, that he's immersed himself into a sinful world. And he's identified with that sinful world, and he's come to save us and to lift up that sinful world into the glory of God. And how will he do it? He'll do it primarily because he is the instrument, in actual fact, he is the forgiveness of God incarnate, made flesh. And the most profound sign and expression of that longingness in the heart of God, that desire and determination of God to call his sinful children back to communion with him, they have the path to repentance. They have to acknowledge their total dependence on God. Like the last song, they have to acknowledge that they have departed from their father's house. And they've gone down there and ate and drank with the, with the swine and, and so on. In other words, they've gone into the abyss of evil and corruption. They have to admit they need God. That they're not capable of doing anything to save themselves. So, in the Gospels, you'll find so much of what Jesus is doing is connected with sinners. And that was one of the complaints the Pharisees and the scribes leveled against him. Look at him. He eats and drinks with sinners. He eats and drinks with you and me. We're sinners. He invites us to his table. And we see so many situations in the Gospel. With Mary Magdalene, who washed his feet he says, your sins are forgiven because you're shown great love. The woman caught in adultery. He says to those who are thrown into death, that you who are without sin throw the first stone. And it's very, very important that we find ourselves in these passages in the New Testament. At times, we, we should be able to see ourselves in the person of the woman caught in adultery. Because every sin, if you like, is an adulterous act. In terms that it's a betrayal of, our, of the covenant God has entered into with us. The relationship between God and each one of us is compared in Scripture as the relationship between a bride and a bridegroom. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was the bridegroom of Israel. Israel was his bride. And so much of the message of the prophets to draw on that marital metaphor to express the nature of sin. Sin is a betrayal. It's an adulterous act. And 
continuously the prophets called the people back to fidelity to the covenant. And God compares himself to a bridegroom who will seek out his bride and he'll woo her to himself and they'll be united forever. And of course Jesus is the personification. He makes concrete that spousal relationship between God and humanity where Jesus comes forward as the bridegroom and the church is his spouse and his bride. And we're called to that fidelity. And when we sin, we are unfaithful to that spousal relationship we've been brought into with Jesus to um, baptism. So we have to see ourselves in these fears in the gospel. And time and time again, Jesus says, I have, he, he demonstrates that his whole mission is to save us from our sins. He, he has come to save us from our sins. And um, he comes searching out the lost sheep. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the stray. He goes in search of the stray. The parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. We've got to find ourselves in both these characters here, in both the younger son and the older son. Just as we must find ourselves in the woman caught in adultery and the people who wanted to stone her to death, because at different stages and at different moments in our lives, we act out, we relive the attitudes of both personalities. How many times have we sinned and betrayed Jesus? and turned our back on the call of God not to do something? But how many times have we been very hard-hearted in our attitude towards others and condemned them and regarded ourselves as holier than them rather than turning to God and, and praying for them and thanking God for the mercy he has shown to us? We must find ourselves in the two blocks who goes up into the temple. The Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee goes up the front, the publican down the back. With his head bowed down, his face raised his head. Lord have mercy on me, a sinner, he said. And then you have the publican up the front. Oh, full of himself. He's done it all right. He's kept all the commandments. He's never broke the law. Probably pays all these taxes are all these ties to the temple. He's there every Sabbath. He won't even wash a cup on the Sabbath day and he won't wash above the arm or whatever. He's kept all the law. Thanks be to God, he says in his prayer. I'm not like that sinner down there. And Jesus says, which of them went home justified? I tell you, the public did. Why? To imitate Jesus, to follow Jesus, you have to commit yourself to the truth. And the first thing you have to open yourself to is the truth about ourselves. And the Holy Spirit who comes into our hearts to transform our hearts, as Pope John Paul II said in his beautiful encyclical on the Holy Spirit in the life of the Church of the world, the first thing the Holy Spirit does, he convinces, and say, this is from St. John's Gospel, he convinces the world of sin. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, 
first of all teaches us the truth about ourselves, about the need for conversion. We need to change our heart. And to recognize the truth about ourselves is to recognize that we are totally and utterly and completely, I can't use any other word, totally dependent on God. For everything that we are and everything everything good that we are, everything that we will become, and for our eternal salvation. And often we can go around the place thinking that we're self-made saints, right? That we're the good people and they're the bad people. Well, anyhow, if we look at the apostles, St. Paul refers to the apostles as what? They are ministers of reconciliation. Re what kind of reconciliation? Is it reconcil reconcil reconciling people with one another who have had conflict in their relationships? With yes, to an certain extent, that is true. But that only follows from reconciling people with God. They are ministers of reconciliation. And what really got Jesus into deep, deep, deep trouble with the authorities of the time? And it was seen as scandalous when he said to people, your sins are forgiven. And the learned men of the day described him, the first one said, how can this man say their sins are forgiven when only God can forgive sins? And Jesus said to them on several occasions, well, to show that a son of man has power on earth to forgive sins, let's hear you, tear up your bed and walk or whatever it was. So he combined the miracle, demonstrating his power over the forces of nature, that hopefully would lead him to accept the more deeper truth about him, that he had the power to forgive sins, and that his disciples would know in time, when they received the Holy Spirit, they would know that he was indeed the Son of God, God himself. And the people said, Elder said, what a marvelous thing this is, that God has given such power to men. What kind of power? The power to forgive sin. And what we have there, if you like, is a prefigure. You find, I think it's the Gospel of Matthew. You have a prefigure there of what Jesus is going to do when he appears to the apostles after his resurrection. Prior to the resurrection, on the night before he died, he gave his apostles and he conferred upon them the power to, to change bread and wine into his body and blood. When he said to them, do this in memory of him, he gave them the power to confect the Eucharist. This is a power that belongs solely to God. How could any man, because they were right, when they said about, how could um, when they questioned his power to forgive sins because they knew that only God could forgive sins. So, when Jesus said to the apostles at the Last Supper and he conferred on them the power to change, to convict the Eucharist, to change, to bring a mind to his body and blood, he said this, do this in memory of him. He was giving them the power to act with the power of God himself. 
he was telling them that in certain situations they would be the instruments through which God's power would flow. Only God could change bread and wine into God himself. Now, when after the resurrection he appears to the apostles, again in St. John's Gospel, and he says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are, they are forgiven, whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. In the Catholic understanding of that passage, he conferred on the apostles the power to administer God's pardon to sinners. And that the Catholic Church believes that that power, both the power to change the bread and wine to the body and blood of Jesus, and the power to administer God's forgiveness to sinners, to absolve them from the sin, which is a power that belongs to God alone, that that power is passed on through a certain sacrament called the Sacrament of Holy Orders. The sacrament that confers the ministerial priesthood or the ordained priesthood on certain members of the church. And what is the sacrament? I know myself at times in my life when I've gone to the sacrament of penance and I've carried a heavy burden of sin on my shoulders what a great relief it is to go there and to know when you confess your sins to the priest and he and he utters them words of uh, absolution you walk out of there and you're in perfect perfect friendship with God your sins are forgiven it's as though you had never sinned God is so merciful. Now, the only thing, an example I can think of, if you have children yourself, and one of the children does something very, very bad, and it creates awful upset and hardship for the parents, and it creates great unhappiness and conflicts among the other members of the family, and so on. And that's what happens, you know, when we commit sin, because God is our Father. We are the children of God. And when we sin, we disrupt the, the, the harmony of the relationship between the, ch the children and the parents and between the children themselves. But I know that parents are, at times, you forget about these things. When harmony is restored, you forget about all these things. It's as though it never happened. And you will also notice that when children experience that reconciliation with the parents, and when they admit the error of their ways and peace and harmony is restored with the parents there's probably greater happiness than ever before and Jesus himself said that and he said there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who is returned than over a hundred righteous people who do not need forgiveness and it's the same in the family of God but as you know with parents if a child does something and it's had a bad ripple effect on other members of the family, you want the child to be reconciled with the other members of the family as well. God calls us to live as his family. 
and the love and the service and the respect and the cooperation that characterizes his children should be an example to the whole world that God is indeed a loving Father, that God is love. And if we commit ourselves to accepting God's invitation to enter into a relationship with Him, and if we try to conform our lives to God's plan for our lives, we will be happy. There will be harmony. As Jesus said, seeing your good works that give praise to your Father in heaven. So, God wants us to come back to Him through the instrument of His church. Because every sin we commit offends God and it offends Him also in His body. Because every member of the church is a member of the body of Christ. The mystical body of Christ. And in His wisdom He wants us to come back to Him and to have our sins come um, forgiven through the ministry of his priests, which is the gift of the sacrament to the church. Now I know at times I'm going to confession, you can feel very nervous when you say, what's the priest thinking about me? Gee, he think I'm an awful sinner altogether. If I see that priest in the street the next day, I have to duck around the corner. Right? <laughs> you know? And um, you can feel very nervous and very embarrassed. And that's part of the penalty. <clears throat> That's part of the humility. Yeah, you admit. But remember, it's not the priest that forgives you. It's God, it's Jesus you're confessing to. He's the one who administers. But he administers, he administers his absolution to his priest. And, you know, I've heard it said that priests generally don't remember people's sins. But it is. It takes an act of humility. And that was a great thing about St. Peter, I thought. St. Peter had great humility. Leave me, Lord, he said, I'm a sinful man. After he betrayed our Lord. But our Lord didn't look at his failings and his many failings. He looked at his deep sincerity. He wanted to love our Lord. He wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to follow our Lord to the end. But he was weak. And his sins and his weakness got in the way at times. But he always returned and he relied on our Lord. He knew our Lord would forgive him. And it's the same with us. And we should love the sacrament of penance. Now, there are two types of sins, you know. There's mortal sin and there's venial sin. And mortal sin is sin that is a very, very serious act, like murder, rape, fornication. Homosexual acts, torture of innocent human beings. You know, it's called grave matter. And if we deliberately and knowingly commit these acts, knowing that they're a grave offense to God, but we do it nevertheless, we accept the consequences, <coughs> we say, I know God is wrong, it is very wrong, but I'm going to do it, that's mortal sin. Now, if we die in a state of mortal sin, we go to heaven. That's the teaching of the church. And, but before we... Another thing on that, 
We can never say, never say, that any one person has committed a mortal sin. They may have carried out a heinous act. They may have murdered several people. Only God knows the full detail, though, for example, of their interior dispositions at the time. We don't know if they could have been suffering from some grave psychological disorder. We don't know to what extent their freedom was involved. Only God can judge that. And there was a very, very good article on that written in Adelaide in around 2004, 2005 for the International, the World Day of the Stick, they call it, I think. There was a big international conference on there, a Catholic conference on the care of the sick. And the keynote speaker there was Cardinal Barrier. He's a Mexican from Mexico. He's the youngest of 22 children. And his father was married twice. And I heard him speak in New Zealand one time. Profound lecture he gave. I won't go into the details of it. But basically, he was talking about the relationship between science and theology when he was speaking in New Zealand. And basically what he was saying is that the, the scientific data shows that every single cell, every single element in the human body is all ordered towards death and donation for the generation of life. Cells are dying, but they're making possible the birth of new cells and so on. Everything in us seems to be ordered towards giving life and transcending our present form of existence. Now, I thought, it was just a profound thing the way he spelled all this out and so on. Now, you take the words of Jesus, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, there is no life in it. It's true about our nature. You can look at it in another way, as the Second Vatican Council said. It said, the vocation of the human being is to give themselves as a gift. A gift to God first, then a gift to each other in service. To empty ourselves of all traces of selfishness and to model ourselves in God who only knows how to give. Anyhow, in this talk in Adelaide, Cardinal Barrigan spoke about the mentally ill. And especially those suffering from various types of, of, of depression, especially manic depression. And he said there were 500, 500 million people in the world suffering from manic depression, of some form of depression, not necessarily manic. And that is quite a sizable proportion of the world's population. And he said that, I forget what the figure he wants, several million a year, I forget the figure exactly, a very large number, it might have been 500,000 commit suicide. And then he said, he goes on to talk about the depressed, people are suffering from depression and other psychological disorders. And he says that these people are very, very close to Jesus and they're suffering, even if they don't know it. And then he said, he raises the question, what about those who feel driven by their depression? Are there a mental disorder? commit suicide. In Ireland, back in the, say, 60, 70 years ago, if you committed suicide, you wouldn't need to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. 
Imagine the message that sent the poor parents in that situation. I'm not judging them, but I'm just saying, thanks to the God we've moved beyond that. But what the Cardinal Vatican said, people in that situation who feel overwhelmed by their depression, by their psychological disorder, even though they can know intellectually that something is wrong, but they go and do it because of the despair they feel as a result of their psychological or mental disorder, their freedom is not fully engaged. Their freedom is impaired by their disorder. Now this is very, very important because what I'm saying is people can act against the modern order in a gravely serious way but we cannot say you have committed a mortal sin. God will make that judgment and the person will confess it to the priest in the sacrament of confession and the priest will administer forgiveness but in the end if somebody dies as a result of an action like that let's say an act of suicide we cannot say they've committed a mortal sin and they died in a state of mortal sin because if we could say that then we could say that person is in hell we can't do that. Now that becomes very, very important because increasingly today there, there is a bit of a surge and an increase and there are an increasing number of families being afflicted with that particular cross. Now, so there are two types of sin. There's mortal sin, you need full freedom, full knowledge, and it's got to be grave matter. If you commit it willingly and knowingly, you commit mortal sin. And if you die in a state of mortal sin, you go to hell. Now, the other type of sin, of course, therefore, ordinarily, the, and it says that somewhere in the Catholic, the only way that mortal sin can be given for a Catholic is through the sacrament of confession. Now, but it says ordinarily, there may be other ways, the point of death, a perfect confession, a, per a perfect act of contrition. But the way, the ordinary way in which the mortal sin can be forgiven is through the sacrament of confession. And if anyone commits a mortal sin on the feeling of themselves in that situation, it's essential to get confession as quickly as possible. Now the other type of sin is venial sin. It's contrary to God's commandment, but it's not grave matter. But nevertheless, it's a failure in charity of some type or other. These sins will be forgiven through, holy, through um, the participation of the Eucharist. But we also go to confession and confess them in confession. And it is very important that we do so to the extent that we're aware of them. Of course, one of the great traps that the devil sets is that it's, uh, it's all right to commit venial sins. So just a little odd word of uncharity about this person, you know. Just, oh, I'll only take a few dollars, you won't make any difference, just business making thousands of dollars, you know. And, <coughs> you know, I'll slip off from work a half an hour early, I won't tell the boss, sure you won't know. All of this type of stuff, you know. All the different ways that we can, um, it's all right if I use bad language in this case, but only once people think it's funny type of thing, you know the wink and the nod and all that type of stuff. I'll only have a quick glance at that, you know, that impure picture over there on the wall and the advertisement and so on. Then I'll turn my head away again quickly and um, 
you know, another God. Right? Now, the thing about these video sins is, if we get it, first of all, we can never accept them because they're still an offense against God. Now, imagine a husband and wife were in love with each other. And they're genuinely doing the best they can to do what's right for each other. But, oh, just give her a little slap now and again. Won't matter much. It won't irretrievably, irretrievably bring a breakdown in the relationship. You know, I just go out, the boys in the pub for the night and come home sloshed and or spend out of most it's it's a grievous thing to deliberately get drunk. But you know I'll do a few things, it doesn't matter if I'm not if it annoys her, I'll tell her I'm sorry and I get home, all will be right. There can be still very, very strong love there. The point is though, the love is gradually becoming corrupted. And venial sin becomes the slippery slope. Your ability to resist temptations, your ability to respond to God's love and say, Lord, God, your will is first in my life. You need a grace to do it. And it is very, very important that we struggle against venial sin. And you'll find it in the writings of the St. Teresa the various saints talking about picking the weeds in the garden, the little weeds in the garden. And you know that the weeds are allowed to grow up with the tooth, they'll choke all the flowers in the garden eventually. Now, so that's why regular confession is awfully important. Regular confession is like, you know, a personal trainer for the Olympic Games. It keeps them in fit shape. Regular confession helps you keep a check of how you're relating to God who loves you and to others. Are you acting as a child of God? Are you striving to the best of your ability to be a faithful member of the church? Are you striving to love your brothers and sisters? Are you striving to be like Jesus and to be like our lady, Jesus, who went around doing good? Our lady, the Immaculate Conception, and she remained immaculate throughout her life. She devoted herself totally and selflessly to the service of God and the service of his brothers and sisters of the disciples. Are there our models for how it is we should live? Because if they're not, if Jesus is not our model for how we should live, well then basically we're not a Christian. Somebody else is our model. If you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love one another as I have loved you. These are not idle words of Jesus. He didn't put them out there, you know, as something, some kind of ideal. He lived it. He lived it on the cross. He did die for us. That's how he loved us. He gave himself totally. No compromise. He gave himself totally. He gave himself totally to the will of the Father, out of love for the Father, and out of love for each one of us. He must be our model. So the sacrament, the frequent attendance of the sacrament of penance, 
is an essential part of leading a Catholic life, a Christian life. Not only does it make us sensitive to the various areas of sin in our lives, we also benefit from the special grace of the sermon. It makes us, it's like, you know, if you're sick, the doctor will prescribe medicine for you. Or, I'm, at the moment, I'm on antibiotics. I'm just good, I'm getting good now. Bad cold on my chest a week ago, in the head, sore throat, the whole world. Right? I was in a bad state. Do you believe that? I wasn't too bad, I'm only exaggerating. But anyhow, I went to the doctor and he prescribed antibiotics for me. And ten of them, ten days, half an hour, no, two hours before dinner, have to have it on an empty stomach in the morning. Well, I have avoided it by that. I followed the prescription because I know the prescription is good for me. And get me back on my feet again. I'll be able to go out there and tear around the place like a, I don't know, a madman. Right? But it's the same in our spiritual life. We've got to fill the tank up. We've got to keep it filled to the brim with grace, with the grace that God has to give us, with the power God has to give us. He energizes us with his sacraments. And one of these is the sacrament of penance. And some people go to confession every week. Some every two weeks, some every month. Some people might go several times a week, depending on what they feel they need to. And nobody should tell you that it's wrong to go several times a week if you feel they need to. Of course, some people might suffer from scruples. That's the difference, is it? And priests have to deal with that in the sacrament of penance. But they meet people who suffer from scruples. Scruples is basically kind of an obsession. You, you believe you can't do anything right for God. And you're just obsessed with even the tiniest little thing that you do wrong that's out of place. You think, you know, God is going to damn me if you don't get immediate absolution and so on. But scruples is a, is a different thing. But if you feel a need to go to confession, you go whenever you want to. And it is a very, very, it's a great, it's a holy habit to develop. Now, I'll just read a few things here from the Catechism. Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain pardon from God's mercy for the offence committed against him, and are at the same time reconciled with the church, which they have wounded by their sins, and which by charity, by example, and by prayer, labor for their conversion. Now, the more we become attached to the sacrament of penance, the more the sacrament of penance becomes just a part of the air we breathe as Catholics, the more we've got to pray as well for the conversion of others. I tell you what, if you don't pray, you'll end up, you won't go to the sacrament of penance too often either. Prayer is primary. Prayer keeps us in tune with God and in tune with the things of God. And it is very, very important, just as we appreciate the mercy that God has shown us, we too, likewise, must show that mercy to others. And one of the greatest acts of mercy we can perform in regard to others is to pray for their conversion. To pray that people in sin, I pray every day, most days, I say a prayer for people who are going to die tonight, who are in a state of mortal sin. That somehow, in God's way, they'll have conversion. 
before they die, before their soul separates from their body. And as one priest said to me one time, a very great and wise priest, you never, never give up on anybody, no matter what kind of a state they've got themselves into. He said, God is able to change hearts between the bridge and the water. He's talking about people who commit suicide. He said, God is able to change hearts between the bridge and the water. He never give up on anyone. And of course, um, I'm sure it's the same in all of you. Not only do you need to pray for yourself, I'm sure you can all know of members in your own family who need plenty of prayers. But I would say everybody in your family needs plenty of prayer. Because everybody needs plenty of prayer. And I'll just read a few more things here from the Catechism about the sacrament of penance. It is called the sacrament of conversion because it makes sacramentally present Jesus' call to conversion, the first step in returning to the Father from whom one has strayed by sin. It is called the sacrament of penance since it consecrates the Christian sinner's personal and ecclesial step of conversion, penance, and satisfaction. Of course, Part of the um, sacrament of penance, you must confess your sins, all mortal sins must be confessed. And then the priest will impose the penance, it may be some prayers to say, it may be something more than that, and then where you can, you have to try and make satisfaction what you've done wrong. So if you've just robbed $10 from some broke out on the street before you come into confession, and you go into confession and tell the sin, you go outside, you're still there, you give them back the $10. You try to make right the wrong that you've done. Now, sometimes a very important area where we may have to do that is, for example, if we spread scandal about something, and we've taken down some people's good name, well then, we have to try and tell these people that it wasn't quite right what I said about that person. But here's another way where we can give scandal. Somebody has done wrong, but somebody else doesn't know anything about the wrong that person has done, and they may never know it. What's the point in telling them about it? There's no point. Sometimes we think we build ourselves up in other people's estimation of us if we can tell them scandal about others. That's a terrible, terrible moral blindness. Anyhow, satisfaction. Trying to make good the wrong we have done. It is called the sacrament of confession since the disclosure or confession of sins to a priest is an essential element of this sacrament. In a profound sense, it is also a confession, an acknowledgement and praise of the holiness of God and of his mercy towards sinful man. When I go to confession, it, it, it represents a great act of faith on my behalf. I'm acknowledging all that God has taught about creation, about sin, about his son coming into the world, about the establishment of the church, about the establishment of the ministerial priesthood by Jesus, that Jesus is present in these priests. It's really an act of assent to the whole creed, if you like, to a certain extent, our participation in the sacrament of penance. It is called the sacrament of forgiveness, since by the pre-sacramental absolution, God grants the penitent Pardon and peace. Pardon and peace. 
I reckon that the greatest need in the world today is the need for forgiveness. There is such conflict and lack of peace between so many people. All you have to do is look at that Sydney morning hurdle for the last couple of weeks. It takes me five minutes to read it in the morning. So it's nothing much read, worth reading on the... We get to where I work and sit at the table every day. People will want the paper for various things. Um, for the last few weeks, the front page was full of trash about the latest corruption and bribes and zoning and you know development and that was tied up with sex and so skip over all that, not relevant to me. I don't want to know about the, the sexual sin that some people live in in some other parts of the country. It's none of my business. Right? Okay? Um, I feel pretty sorry for the people who feel the need to report all this stuff. Now, if there's public interest involved, that can be, and in this case you might say there might be, because there's public funding of various development projects and so on. But you go through it, the murder, the rape, the drug, all there, you very, very quickly realise there's a great need for peace and reconciliation in our world. And this sacrament of forgiveness, it's also, may God grant you pardon and peace. And of course, the first thing we have to be liberated from is our sin and our guilt for sins we have committed. Because one way or the other, they'll keep nagging us until we get a forgiveness. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Eamon Keane. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.